Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. I'm your host, David Frizzell, and my guest in this episode is a regular on the show. Michelle Gibbings joins us for the fourth time. This time we're talking about the future of work. We're all incredibly aware at the rate at which the world is changing and the workplace with it. So what will it take for you and me to be successful professionally into the future? What does the future hold and how can we prepare ourselves for it? Michelle's here to tell us all about it. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Michelle Gibbings. Michelle Gibbings, welcome back to the Team Guru Podcast. David, I love being on your program. Ah, You know what? How many times have you been on, do you think? Have a guess. I think it's four. This is number four. Well done. And you are the first person who's come on four times. I think I've had a three, a few three-peats, but never a four. So welcome back. Lovely to have you back. We chatted for the first time in episode 43 about stepping up your career. Then we chatted in episode 88 about survive and thrive in a rapidly changing world. And then in 130 about how to deal with a bad boss. I think this is going to be episode 196 or 97. So wow, you've been with us for the journey. Hey, episode number 88, I listened to it earlier. It was terrific. And I want to have a similar conversation to today, but I think we can sort of evolve it a little bit and and put a bit more meat on the bone than we even did then in that great conversation. I'm really interested in a piece I read of yours recently, Five Ways to Prepare Yourself for the Future of Work. In your mind, what has changed since we had that conversation in 2018 or 2019 about surviving and thriving in a rapidly changing world? What else have we learned and what does that mean for us as individuals? I think we've just taken up our 30 minutes because <laughs> that'll cover, like, it's such a broad topic. To me, there's a couple of things. You know, obviously, we've come out of the pandemic and that has changed us. It's changed all of us. And I'm still p- seeing people who have emotional hangovers because of what they went through. And during that period, they really reassessed life and work and how the two connect to each other. But also what we're seeing, particularly, you know, just even in the last, you know, five months of this year with AI, things like chat GPT, you know, every day I open the newspaper and there's something more about the evolution of AI that is just accelerating at a faster pace than I think anyone anticipated. And it is absolutely going to be changing, particularly professions, how we work. And it's changing how we work now. This is not something that's coming down the track in two years' time or three years' time. It's on the doorstep. So we are going to get to those five ways to prepare yourself. So that's the the meat of the conversation. So listeners can look forward to that. But I really love dipping into this type of conversation. When you first started hearing about chat GPT, and have since heard about it for six months or so, did it ring alarm bells for you straight away as a real game changer, something that will change even this cutting edge type of conversation? I think I saw it as a bit of, oh, this sounds like fun. Let's have a little play with it. Let's just see what it can do. And then when you start to see what it can do, you go, wow, this is amazing. Then when you start to really dig further and you start to see, I mean, there was an article earlier this week about what they're calling auto GPT. That's when I started to get a bit scared because you go, okay, so what's the limitations? What are the ethics? What are the boundaries that we're putting around this to really understand how we use this for good? 
not for evil. But I certainly think if you are in a profession and you haven't started to explore and play with it, you are going to start getting left behind because it is something that you can use to uplift your productivity. And I can guarantee you that the person beside you is using it. I think the power of chat GPT for me was it was an actualization of a abstraction that we've had for a long time. We've known anecdotally, and people will talk about it, AI is coming. It's going to come and take certain types of jobs that have just a knowledge base or a, a, an element of repetition about it, even if it's a cognitive job. Chat, we knew that was coming. Chat GPT, as I say, is the actualization of that. And to see the examples that are being used. So that's great. You, and, but you said there that it, it worries you and you're concerned that we'll use it for evil. What do you define as using it for good and evil? What And what concerns you the most? What would fall into those categories of good and evil to start with? Yeah. So I think absolutely, you can use it for, you should be using it for parameters. So for example, if you're doing a piece of work, you can use it to outline the framework. You can use it to help you schedule. You can use it to help you come up with new ideas. So it's a really great way of starting the conversation and starting the work that you're doing. But I would start to worry if you're completely outsourcing everything and all the decision making to the tool, because there, you know, it comes with a you know a database, and yes, the database keeps learning, but there's also a cutoff point in terms of the currency of the information that is in there, and it makes mistakes. So you know, I've put in things where I've said, "Give me academic references on this particular topic," and it'll give you academic references. I then go to those academic references, and they don't exist. Wow. So yeah, and so it's really important for people to go. Don't rely on it for being in entirely accurate. It's not. So it's a good thought starter. Where the danger starts to play is if you are in a situation, so the one, the article that I was reading earlier in the week where this auto GPT tool was not only doing this piece of analysis, it then realized that the computer didn't have the software that it needed to be able to do the analysis. So it actually wrote the code, oh, then, wow. created, then created the software and then also updated Python because it realized the system didn't have the latest version of Python to be able to do what it needed to do to get the outcome. And you go, well, that's pretty cool. But my little sort of, and I'm not a cybersecurity expert, you have to be thinking the hackers are going to be trying to find a way to get in. So is this a way that they're going to potentially be getting in, in the back door of organizations? I think also sometimes people don't necessarily realize that, you know, if you are putting information into that system, unless you are doing it in an environment that is enclosed within your organization, it feeds into the information knowledge that the AI is continuing to learn because that's what AI does. It continues to learn. So if you are putting company data into chat GPT, it is keeping that information. And it can potentially reuse that. And you don't know that it's going to be doing that. So I think there's things like that that you need to be aware of. But I also think, you know, the really important thing is humans, we don't want to outsource decision-making to robots. We need to be really clear about when we're making decisions. And I was reading an article the other day, and I can't remember the um, the tech exec who was talking about this, but he was saying, oh, you know, eventually what you'll do is you'll be having these meetings. And around the meeting, what you'll do is you'll turn to your, you know, your internal chat GPT and you'll ask it, what have we not considered in this conversation? Because it will be able to look across the database mm-hmm. of the organization and then say, hey, you've missed this. You haven't thought about this. You haven't thought about that. Now, I look at that and go, that's great. It's reminding you of things that you might have forgotten. But what you wouldn't want to do is then as the execs go, okay, so what decision should we make? Humans need to be accountable for the decisions that humans are making. 
isn't it amazing to think that chat GPT is barely a few months old and it, it is already arousing these kind of discussions and, and ponderings about the future? Iteration one, imagine what it will be like in another six months and another you know, year or, or more. And we know that these things are exponential and the way that it gathers data and is able to use it um, will be breathtaking. Hey, I'm interested, Michelle, where do you sit philosophically on this? I was interested if your answer there about the evils of chat GPT would come into taking over the jobs of humans. You didn't go there and you didn't suggest that chat GPT taking over jobs of human is necessarily evil or bad in itself. But where do you sit philosophically about the future of work and the role that it plays in humanity? I guess what I really want to get to is, are you okay with the idea of a future in which we don't work and that that's not a a big driver of human behavior? Humans need purpose. And so if we don't have purpose and we don't have connection, we really flounder. And so if you're not doing something that makes you feel productive, feel like you're contributing to society, and there's a lot of research that backs this up, work plays a really important part in how we see ourselves and define ourselves. And so I think there are conversations around what that looks like, but this also then leads into conversations around universal basic income. You know, I don't want to live in a society where there's a whole raft of people who do not have work and cannot get work and therefore are unhappy, they're unemployable, and they're living in poverty. I don't think that serves anybody. And so I think we need to, as a society, have a conversation about what type of world we want to live in and what does that mean for each of us and how we contribute. You know, I look at myself as an example. You know, I get a lot of satisfaction out of the work that I do. And if someone said to me, well, you could never work again, and I'd go, well, well, what would I do? Because, you know, sitting at home watching Netflix all day isn't a good way to live your life. Now, you could then go, okay, I could generate it and do community service work. Like, There's lots of other things that you could do. But work does play an important part in our lives. And so I think it's part of this is then understanding, yes, these tools are going to change the type of work that we do. And we need to ready people for it. But the thing that computers, technology can never do is take away that human to human connection. You know, I often say to people, a robot can't give you a hug. They can't show you empathy or care and connection. And so all of those service professions, all of that becomes way more important. And I was reading an article that academic research where they basically looked at both ChatGPT, but also the sort of graphic design version of ChatGPT, so Midjourney, Dali-E, and they were ranking professions from the most impacted to the least impacted. In the top 10 professions impacted by ChatGPT, all teachers English teachers, philosophers, law, down the bottom, aerobics instructors, dancers, and people working in meat factories. So you know, there are still going to be roles that we need, and we're still going to need teachers, but I think how they teach is going to be different. Very much so. Hey, I found it really interesting that you started the answer to my question around purpose and work's central role and purpose that we that humans need. Is work paid work, the, the need to work, to pay the bills, is that the only source of purpose that you can imagine? Is it even the best source of purpose? To me, it comes down to, it's almost like that intrinsic versus extrinsic. And so there is no doubt that there are a lot of people who, it's a privilege to say, right, you have a job that you love and that you're passionate about it. Because there are a lot of people who just go to work, earn a wage because they have to pay the bills. But what we know through research, and this comes from Amy Resnicki, who's an academic at Harvard, sorry, at Yale. And she has found that if you can find more meaning and purpose in your work, you are happier and healthier. And she ran these studies with 
hospital janitorial staff. Now, you know, being a janitor isn't necessarily a job that people would go, you know, this is a job that you could find a lot of meaning in. But what she was able to do is when she was working with them, she found that the ones who are happier and healthier, more satisfied in their work, they connected their job to a higher purpose. They were saying, I'm not just cleaning floors, I'm creating an environment that is safe for the doctors to be able to do their work. And therefore, I'm contributing to patients having better care, better outcomes in this hospital. And so that to me is the connection, is that ability to be able to go that what I'm, the work I'm doing has meaning because it's actually contributing something. And I think I just don't see people wanting to come to work and just do a bad job. Most people come to work every day and they want to contribute and they want to feel that they're valued. And to me, that's where the purpose angle comes in. Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. Do you think it should be more of a human priority in modern society, a, a priority for us in, in our community conversations, in political conversations, uh, in global conversations, to cut down the role that work plays in our life so that we can fulfill, say, the, the prediction by Keynes in 1930 that by the turn of the century, we'd be working 15-hour weeks Mm. because technological advances would mean that we could. Now, when we look around our world, we see all these incredible time-saving devices. I just put the dishwasher on downstairs and put a load of washing on, two chores that only a generation or two or three ago would have done by hand. Our computers, obviously, and the, the information that we have at our fingertips, Keynes was right almost a century ago to suggest that technology would advance to the point where it's at our fingertips to work much less. But we've kind of decided to go in a different direction. And since Keynes said those words or wrote those words, we've created whole industries full of what David Graeber calls bullshit jobs, mm-hmm. jobs that don't actually don't actually move forward the human condition. He names them. Maybe I should be unkind and name them. <laughs> Private equity CEOs, lobbyists, PR researchers, actuaries, telemarketers, bailiffs, legal consultants, all of that. So why isn't reducing the amount of time we spend at work the number one thing that we talk about at a community and a political level? That's a really good question. And I don't feel like I've got a single answer to it. To me, I think it's part of it's how society is structured and also the status that we attach with work. We attach a lot of status to roles at certain levels and how much money you associate with the the role that you've got. To me, this also feeds into that whole debate around four-day working weeks. And there's two schools of thoughts. Moving to a four-day working week is good for us from a mental health and well-being perspective. And moving to a four-day working week also creates additional capacity for the people who are going to be out of work because of technology. And so you move to a more sort of job sharing kind of arrangement. But to me, that's a conversation around the type of society that we want, the role that work plays in that society. And the big pit that that sits with that is equity. What's the type of equity and social sort of justice that you want sitting along society? And I think that part is often missing in the conversation. I think it is missing. We just had a budget handed down here in Australia last night, a federal budget. I didn't watch it because I don't have any trouble getting to sleep, so I don't need to watch it. But I know 
from the reports I've read this morning that what we're talking about wasn't mentioned. It's not mentioned because we talk about forward estimates of four years. We talk about three-year political cycles and and four-hour news cycles. So it's not part of the conversation. But in my quieter moments, I do ponder that about the human condition and, and this artificial attachment we make to work and purpose almost suggesting that there's no other way to find purpose in our life. And the idea that all of the technical advances that we've made haven't taken us away from work. In fact, we work a little bit more now than we did a generation ago. It it seems amazing to me. And I know it's a much bigger conversation. Hey, now before we get, and please feel free to close out on that if you like, but before we get to your five ways to prepare yourself for the future of work, I'd like to speak very briefly about COVID. We've talked ad nauseum about COVID you know, in every different medium. But what do you think COVID has left us with in terms of permanent changes to the way that we do work? What was temporary? What did we do for a while and and have sort of gone back to old habits? But what is a longer term trend that we can look back on COVID and thank it for? I would put a almost like a wrapper around that and say, what do individuals want it to be? Because yes, there's a societal piece and there's pressures from you know certain organizations, but what are the choices that you as an individual are going to make because you have assessed that this has been good for you? And I'll use myself as an example. I used to be on a plane almost every single week. That is not happening anymore and it will not happen in the future. I have no interest in traveling the way that I used to travel. I have Exactly. I've completely reconstructed how I work and I'm much happier and healthier as a result. And it's interesting because if I look back to my prior time, I don't think I could pinpoint that I was unhappy, but it was just this, it's almost like a habit. You just work the way you work. Yeah. Well, yeah. You just work the way you work because that's the way you've always done things. The work from home, you know, we're starting to see senior leaders say people need to come back into the office, but the base of the employment is saying, actually, no, I'm really happy working from home. To me, it's about finding that happy medium because what I am seeing is that there are certain roles that you can very easily do and very successfully do working from home. And I think that will stay. But what we are missing is that human to human connection. And so finding the balance where you might be back in the office one day a week or two days a week, to me, that's going to be the happy medium. But I do think work from home and flexible working arrangements absolutely here to stay. And I do see that people will be more deliberate about how they travel when they come together and how they use technology to make their work work. The other caveat that I've put on the side of that as well is people's boundaries blurred over the last years in terms of home life and work life because of work work from home. And I do think people need to now really sit down and go, okay, if I am working from home, how am I controlling when I'm doing emails, when I'm Unlocking my phone. When am I turning off the digital devices so that I can switch off? That was one of the very early pieces of collective wisdom that came early in the pandemic was that idea that now that we're working from home most of the time, it's really important to have that tangible barrier. Whether you walk out of your home office and do a lot, uh, you know, do a block just to give yourself that that space between work and home, or whether you go and get changed and then come back out of your bedroom in new clothes and that's the end of your workday, or whether you have a trigger activity. I've finished work. Before I go back to the family, I'm going to go for a half hour run. That is yep. my trigger activity that suggests to my, my brain that work is over. Hey, one of the things that I'd like to pluck out of what you just talked about there, and it's just occurred to me, you know that idea, um, people worked from home and they saw the freedom that it gave them, the balance in their life, the lack of the commute. I can put a load of washing on during my lunchtime and hey, hey, presto, by the end of the day, I've got a clean and dry load of washing. It's all very useful. 
But then workplaces started to say, hey, we're missing the human connection. Come back one day a week, two days a week. We don't get the same thing over Teams. Do you think there's a chance that in the future, and this is going back to Keynes' statement about the 15-hour work week, we'll strip back the workplace and remove anything that is not completely practical getting the job done, whether it's connections, workmates, coffee, birthday cake, just take it all away and just do the job and not worry about how long we're at work, but think about doing the job. And then our real connections are in our real life. And because we're spending less time at work, it's a less prominent part of our life. We're able to put all of that desire and need for human connection into our real life. What do you think about that future? I don't. And I look, it's interesting. I struggle with the word when you say real life, because work is still real life. I look at some of the connections and friends that I've made from work and, you know, and it's that, you know, it's the, the sort of debate of, you know, do you work to live or live to work? And there are some people who derive a huge amount of satisfaction of out of the work that they do and they love being at work. And then there's a whole heap of people who kind of go, oh, I'm really only working because I have to. Mm-hmm. And so to me, it's about what do you want it to be? As an individual, what is it that you can control or influence in the environment that you're working to create a working style that works for you because different people need different things. I don't think it's one size fits all. Very good. Very good answer. And I love the fact that you picked me up on that real world thing because I've said the same thing that you just picked me up on many times before. So good pick up. All right, Michelle, let's get to these. We've got five ways to prepare yourself for the future of work. And I love the conversation we just had because this is such a huge topic. And when we talk about the future of work, we could be thinking next month, we could be thinking in 10 years time or in 50 years time for the working life of our children. So there's so much to it. But let's think now in the short and the medium term for us as individuals in the midst of our career, knowing that we're going to have to continue to evolve to keep up and stay employed and stay relevant. What are the five? Do you want to go through them just as a list or do we want to do it one by one? We'll just go one by one and I'll I'll ask you a whole bunch of naive questions along the way. That (laughs) sounds perfect. I think the first thing is just recognize it's going to happen. Put your arms around it, embrace it. You can stick your head in the sand, hope it goes away, but it won't. So this is you really keeping your finger on the pulse of change. When you see that things are changing, when you're noticing that things are being a bit different, really investigate what does it mean for me? What does it mean for my profession? What does it mean for my industry? So that you can start to get a sense of okay, how do I plan for this? How am I going to make the most of the opportunities that this brings? Change is not going anywhere. We know it's you know it, it's the pace of change which has changed, isn't it? We know that Aristotle spoke about change. We know that you know everyone who's anyone as a philosopher and a thinker through history has talked about change being important. I'm just actually looking for another note here. Here we go. Even the, the British Prime Minister, Benjamin Disraeli, he died in 1881. He said, in a progressive country, change is constant. Change is inevitable. There's no getting away from it. In, in the era we live in, it's the speed of technological development that drives the pace of change. So it's not going anywhere. You've got two options, I guess you're saying, Michelle. You can stick your head in the sand and hope this doesn't affect me, or you can lift your head up and start to pay attention to what's coming and how that might impact you and and what you can do about it. And I think with that as well, you know, people always say, oh, humans hate change. And I go, bollocks to that. We don't hate change. 
We hate change that is imposed on us mm. where we feel like we have no choice. So rather than sit back and wait for it to happen and be done to you, because it's going to happen. Get amongst Yeah, absolutely. All right, that's number one, embrace change. What's number two? If this is you investing time. So what you want to do is really understand where are you now? Where do you want to be? What do you need to do to get there? So this is you. It's almost like what I call like a, a career stock take where you're really analyzing the value that you offer, understanding the skills that you're bringing, and then recognizing that those skills and needs, that changes over time. So what the employers are looking for, just as the world's changing, therefore what the employers are needing in terms of a skill set is changing. So you want to understand how do I keep my skill set current and then what am I going to do about it? Give me an example of especially maybe a profession right now that should be paying attention to something like chat, GPT, maybe the legal profession, for example, who spend a lot of time looking through cases and, and writing briefs, et cetera. Chat, GPT could very well start doing that for you. So maybe lawyer is not the right industry, but give me an example of an industry in which someone is doing step two. They're getting invested, re-examining their career in their industry and what it means to them. Who have you worked with that should be doing this, who is doing this well? Look, I think all professionals are impacted. So, you know, different if you're a doctor and stuff like that, but, you know, you still have people who use Dr. Google to work out whether they need to go and see their GP. But if you are in accounting, if you are in law, if you are in graphic design, if you're in editing and copywriting, you know, all of those industries are going to be impacted. Consulting firms, we know that consulting firms are going to be impacted. So they're working through at the moment how they're going to be using this and how do they integrate it into their processes. You know, some of the big tech companies are also then looking through you know, how do you use it? Because what you might be able to do is have chat GPT at the sort of the front end helping answer queries that customers have got. But then when you need a higher level of service, they go and talk to a human. So there's so many applications. And I would be saying any profession that you're in, play around with it, understand it, talk to some of the tech companies who are starting to investigate this because you can learn a lot from them in terms of what they're doing. You want to be, you know, you don't necessarily have to be the early adopter, but you certainly don't want to be a laggard. Yeah. I remember having a conversation with Gihan Pereira back in episode 122. I just looked it up and I remember him saying something really similar to me about, you know, yes, there there is there there is artificial intelligence that will come along and put some jobs under pressure. But the real sweet spot for us humans is working is being the person who can work with the artificial intelligence and be that human interface between the real world, your customers, or your whatever it might be, and the AI that you're using to support the work you do. Those who are agile and are able to stay ahead of the curve and are adjusting, as you suggest, are the people who can be that interface. Absolutely. And I think that's a lovely segue into the next point, because the third bit is about focusing on connection. And so, you know, it's, you can get absorbed in your technology and just hang out in tech land. But the real, we know this, even like research that was done back in 2017 by McKinsey's where they looked at which of the, from the most to the least impacted from automation and technology. And at that point, they were saying anything that you can turn into a process can eventually be automated. And organizations do what we call wage arbitrage. They work through what's the cost of actually automating this versus getting a human to do it. And as soon as it's cheaper to automate, they will automate. But what they can't automate 
is service industry. So if you're working as a nurse, if you're working in a cafe as a barista, if you're working as a dancer, an artist, all of those sorts of things, we can't outsource any of that to computers. Working in aged care, like it's interesting, so many of those caring professions that have often been, we realize are important, but we haven't necessarily valued as much as we should, are going to become so much more important into the future. You know, that's one of the points that David Graeber, the guy that's famous for that term bullshit jobs, he talked about the fact that any job that is really tangibly helping humans seem to be the jobs that we undervalue the most. Something Ooh. like an aged care worker or a nurse or a teacher or a car mechanic, things that where if you to take them out of the economy, things would start to crash and burn pretty quickly. But then some of the professions that we reward the most are jobs that you could argue not only should they not be done, it would actually be better if they weren't done, some of the, the bullshit jobs that he described before. So I find that whole point really interesting. I was listening to Yuval Noah Harari of Sapiens and Homo Juice and 21 Lessons, 21st Century Fame, and he, he's usually brilliant, but he was saying something that he I couldn't believe he didn't say the third thing. He was talking about humans have been able to do two types of work in our history, physical and cognitive. The original Industrial Revolution of the 18th and the 19th century automated a lot of the physical work that we did. So we moved into the cognitive world. And now AI is putting under threat a lot of the cognitive work we do. And then he said, and we can't think of a third type of work that humans do. But to me, it was very clear. What about emotional work? What I, about, was just, I was going to say exactly the same thing. <laughs> what about the human connection that we do? So maybe what we can, what wisdom we can sort of extract from all of this is that if you're doing a really human thing, which is connecting and being creative and using your imagination, but most of all, that first one, the connecting part, connecting with other humans, maybe they are the jobs that are in prime position over the medium term. Look, and I also think if you think about us as humans, one of my books of the year was Johan Hari's Lost Connections. And he was talking about depression, but also how, you know, a lot of depression, you know, the, the people say, well, if you're depressed, get medicated. And he did all this research because he was suffering de from depression and realized that so much of some of the depression is just this sense of disconnection and loneliness. And the research shows that as humans, you know, we are tribal creatures. We cannot survive alone and we need care, connection and empathy. And I think as the world gets more complex, I'm hoping that we find ways to also make things more simple and focus on the things that really matter. Because when we do that, we're happier and healthier as an individual, but also as a collective. I've said many times on this podcast that it feels like we're in the very early stages of like a child with a new toy. The smartphones, the the computing power that we walk around with in our pockets, we're the first generation to have full access to that. And it's maybe like we're playing with it immaturely and we need to learn a new way. For example, I was hanging out with a couple of mates the other day, guys who have been in my life for 35 years who we very rarely see, but we message each other on WhatsApp 20 times a day. And it gives us this false sense that we're connected but it's not until we actually get together in the same room and realize the depths of our friendship. Because like I say, we spend most of the time cutting ourselves a break saying, you don't need to call them. You don't need to go to the effort to catch up with them because you chat with him 20 times a day on WhatsApp. 
it's not the same thing. And that's where I met what I mean when I say maybe humans will almost get better at this and get better at doing the things that are still innately human, like connecting. And we're just in the early days of getting used to how to do that. Can I just say I hope so? Because, you know, what you're seeing with the younger generation and the use of social media, it is altering their brains and Mm. how their brains work and not in a good way. And I often get horrified when I see parents and they're walking their children and they're not talking to their children, they're They're on on the phone. phone. And the kids looking at the phone or looking at a tablet and there's no interaction. Mm. And then you'll see them out to dinner and there's no interaction Mm. and it's all technology driven. So one, I think there's an education piece in this. I don't think people yet really understand the damage that it's doing, Mm. but also the damage on social media in terms of people feeling like their self-worth is connected to how many likes and how many followers they have. All right. Now I have interrupted you. Number one was embrace change. Number two, get invested. Number three, focus on connection. And that's what took me off on a tangent. What is number four, Michelle? All about finding your learning edge. So if you've got a sense and you've started to look at, yeah, my profession, my industry is changing, you're getting a sense of the skills. And I often say to people, when you think about your skills, work out which ones are adaptable, which ones are transferable, but which ones are going to be replaceable because, you know, as the profession changes, you just leave them behind. Once you've done that analysis, you can then sit down and go, okay, what learning do I need? What qualifications? Is it micro-credentials? Do I actually need to go and spend some time really understanding my skills as a leader, build empathy and care and connection? Is it that I need to be more self-aware? And so, you know, often when we think about development, we focus on the technical skills, but into the future, it's going to be far more about understanding ourselves. And that's why I often worry because we hear a lot, so much about STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, math, and that's important. But I often say to people, you need to study history, literature, philosophy, because we need to understand who we are as humans and why we think the way we do. Because eventually you're not going to need to know how to code because the computers will do it for you. So, you know, investing all our energy into this tech scape means we're missing out on teaching and learning about our common humanity. And to me, that is so important. It's almost as if we're going to be presented with an opportunity as humans to be postmodern because all the technology stuff will be taken care of AI and we can just get back to what's truly human. There's maybe a, a real glimmer of hope there, a light at the end of the tunnel for us when it comes to finding balance with technology. So number four was find your earning learning edge. Being a lifelong learner has always been super important, but it's never more important than it is right now. And it's never going to be more important than it will be in 10 years time, et cetera, because things change so quickly. Being a lifelong learner will become even more important. All right, lucky last, Michelle, what's number five? Build your advisory board. We know through research, many jobs are are not advertised. So often you will get your next job, your next gig through people that you know. And part of this advisory board, I often say to people, it can be really helpful to have a mentor. You might have a professional coach who actually is a career person who can help you through some of the career decisions you might need. But also, who's the person who can provide advice to you on how the tech's going to impact the work that you do? Who have you got in your social circle as well who might be able to provide different advice around navigating and adapting to the changing world? So your advisory board, 
you know, and it's not as though you have monthly meetings and you take minutes or anything like that, but you've identified who are the people that I need to have in my network that I contribute to the relationship, but also I'm going to learn things from. And they're there to support, challenge and advise you as you're making your career decisions. All right, Michelle. Now, usually I ask my guests to finish with their gut nuggets of wisdom, but you've just given us those. You've just given us your five ways to prepare yourself for the future of work. So I want to finish this way. Michelle, give us a tangible prediction for the future, something that we can check on in the next six months, 12 months, 18 months, and come back and tell you you were spot on or that you got it wrong. Give us a prediction, Michelle Gibbings, go. That chat GPT is going to go far faster than we ever thought. Uh-huh. Like I just, I think we are going to continue to discover things where we go, oh, wow, I had no idea it could do that. You know, it's, it's interesting. There's one of me that goes, there's the realism. And then there's me that is the hope. And my hopeful side goes, I really hope as a society, we have the conversations we need to have about who we want to be mm. and how we work together. And how do we make sure we're not leaving anyone behind? Because we really run the risk that as we keep moving into this technology, that the people who have all the money and have all the skills, they just keep making more money and they keep earning more skills. But the people who are already struggling just continue to get left behind. And that's not the type of society I want to live in. Here's my prediction for the future. Over the next 6, 12, 18 months, I think we'll continue to undervalue the concept of post-work future. I don't think we'll talk about it as much as we should. I think the thinkers, the writers who are in that space will continue to grow a little bit. But I think for the conceivable future, we will undervalue it in terms of a national discourse. And that's a real shame because I think that we have a golden era of humanity within reach. But if we keep going about it the way we're going about it, it is going to elude us. And instead of working four hours a week or 15 hours a week, if Keynes suggested, we'll continue to work 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week. But a lot of it will be time wasting. A lot of it will be fluff just sitting at a desk to fill space and time and a massive missed opportunity for us as humans. What do you think about that? Oh, that makes me feel sad. It does make well, Let's hope that I'm wrong and then that's not our future. And let's hope that those kind of thinkers are finding their voice in public discourse. Well, and I think it all then has to feed into leadership because it's leaders making some big decisions about the type of leaders that they want to be and also really hearing the people that work with them about what they need. And I had this debate, would have been sometime last year, I was on one of the you know main sort of current affair kind of TV programs and I was invited to come on and share my perspective on, on. Which one? Name drop. Give us a name. It, um, it was the project. Oh, and okay. they wanted to, you know, the question was, you know, about this whole monitoring of people from home. And I said, mm. it shouldn't be about how many hours you work. It should be about the Output. output. And what was really interesting is, you know, after I'd done my, you know, the Q&A with me, they then kind of wrapped and a couple of people who are on the hosting said, no, no, it's, you know, it really is about the hours that you work. And I remember thinking, wow, that's such an old, whole, old fashioned way of thinking. Mm. You know, I would rather have people work for me who are productive. And if they can get it done in two hours, great, get it done in two hours and then have the rest of the day off. To me, we have to shift the narrative got to be about the outcomes and how the work is done as opposed to how many hours you are gluing yourself to a chair because it's really easy to stretch your day out and act as though you're doing a lot when you're not. Of course. And that's that's exactly right. Look, Michelle Gibbings, it has been an absolute blast to have you on again for the fourth time. Let's not make it the last. 
I hope you're well. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. And that was Michelle Gibbings. As always, I thoroughly enjoyed our chat. The future of work, what a topic. And as Michelle says, it's imperative for all of us to think about how we can best prepare ourselves to keep up and carve out a successful professional path. Michelle's five ways to prepare yourself for the future. Number one, embrace the change. Number two, get invested. Number three, focus on connection. Number four, find your learning edge. And number five, build an advisory board. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Michelle on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. And don't forget about my new project, yourstorypod.com.au and get in touch if there's someone you care about who should tell their life story. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.